Garrick. This week, Ted Cable, editor of the Apologetics Study Bible, joins us to talk about apologetics, guitars, and whether or not Christians should divide over the question of the age of the earth. And I'm Timothy. In the second half of this week's episode, Garrick and I take a look at one of the greatest bands in the entire history of rock and roll. And that band is ACDC. The song is Let There Be Rock. And along the way, we'll look at the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and how the music of ACDC can take down dictators and save your life. To learn more about classical arguments for the existence of God, take a look at the work called Come Let Us Reason, edited by William Lane Craig and Paul Capan, published by our friends at BNH Academic. That's Come Let Us Reason, new essays in Christian apologetics. For more information, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, Dr. Cable, thank you so much for joining us today on this program. Thank you for having me, Tim. Well, one of the things that we like to do early on is for us to ask a question that lets our listeners get to know you a little bit more. And one of the things that you and I both have in common is an appreciation for blues and rock and roll that has led beyond merely listening to music to us playing the guitar. And so my first question for you is, what is your favorite guitar that you have ever played? Probably a Gibson... ES-335 that dates back to about 1960, a friend had that was worth probably about $50,000. It was a sweet guitar played through an amp that Stevie Ray Vaughan had once owned. Wow, that is amazing. So in that vein as well, tell me about what is the song that you play when you sit down with your guitar? That one song, almost all of us have one. When I sit down with the guitar, I play Panama by Van Halen. That's just the first thing that comes out of my fingers to loosen up. What is the one that you sit down and when you pick up a guitar, sit down with it, that you tend to just launch into that song? Well, since our topic today relates to dinosaurs, I'm a dinosaur. When I became a Christian in 1973, I thought I had to turn away from all of the music which I was aspiring to be part of in the rock and roll scene. And so I kind of go back to what was my roots, which was stuff like Clapton and Hendrix and stuff like that. So those are the things that I can sit down and sort of play without having to think about it. But if I could come back as a different person, of course, as a Christian, I'd love to be Eric Johnson. So when I went a little bit later in time, he takes what we were trying to do, made it more melodic, smoother, and way faster.
Well, a few years ago, you co-authored an outstanding book entitled Controversy of the Ages. It's a book about the age of the earth controversy among Christians. And so could you just give us, first of all, a brief history of this controversy among Christians about the age of the earth? How did this controversy come about? What were some of the early perspectives? And just give us a summary of that. It might surprise our listeners to realize that the tone of the controversy about the age of the earth is really a recent animal. It kind of dates to the middle of the 20th century or actually more recently. If I could uh, just put it this way, the people who fought evolution ever since the origin of the species, 1859, became a big deal were largely old earth creationists. This would have been people like Charles Hodge at the old Princeton, the founders of this seminary, the fundamentalists, Charles Spurgeon, Scopes Trial, the early neo-evangelicals, and so on. But evangelicalism, as soon as it turned around in the middle of the 50s, became largely enmeshed in seeking right back what the liberals had done earlier, and that is to somehow accommodate evolution. And the reaction against that was led by none other than Henry Morris, a person I've had great admiration for. And he launched a movement that was straight to the heart of the churches, take the message not only anti-evolution, but anti-old earth creationism. That was called the Institute for Creation Research. And that launched a movement by the 1980s we can only call a revolution whereby suddenly anti-evolution became equated with young earth creationism. And the rhetoric got amped up such that in the minds of many evangelicals to be faithful to the Bible and to be anti-evolution meant and only meant that you were a young earth creationist. And I can testify to that personally in that because I remember I was in college facing a serious crisis of my faith. And part of that crisis was I had become convinced that the earth was very old, billions of years old. And I honestly did not know that it was possible to love Jesus, to believe the Bible, and believe the earth was billions of years old. I had been raised in a church and in some Christian schools that we had actually read Henry Morris's book, The Genesis Flood, and things like that. And I did not know it was conceivable. And I remember that moment that I was reading C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. And I realized that C.S. Lewis believed in an old earth. And that was just like a life raft thrown out to me. Suddenly, I realized this isn't a reason to walk away from the faith. And that really became important to me because I read that and I realized I don't have to abandon the faith to believe that the earth is billions of years old. But I was 18 years old and I didn't know you could believe the Bible and not believe that the earth is only a few thousand years old. And that shows just the degree to which it had spread so far by that point that I could grow up in the church and not even know old earth creationism is a viable option or a viable reality for somebody who loves Jesus, who believes that the Bible is completely inerrant, completely true, that I didn't know that you could even do that. I think it's a really important message to get out to folks that this is a an issue to have conversations about, but it, that it ought to be, or much of this is a family dinner conversation, but yet we're so divided over it in evangelicalism. So I think it's important for people to hear that that's not the way that it has always been, nor should it be. And so could you tell our listeners, in your opinion, 
why this is not an issue to be divided over. If we can be clear, which I seek to document in the book, that old earth creationism has nothing to do with being an evolutionist, as I've already said, it was the default position for anti-evolutionists, and the majority of the people who fought evolution were old earth creationists. Indeed, the original fundamentalist movement was overwhelmingly old earth. So if we can set that to one side, I personally could care less whether a person is a young earth creationist. I have my own views about it, but I don't think, as you say, it is an issue that should be divisive. What instead I would say is, if a person can affirm all of the essentials of Christian orthodoxy, the gospel, and so on, then indeed I think we need to recognize there are times when we draw lines and say this is really important, but there are other times when not. Let me give a quick example. When I first became a Christian, it was very common for people to fight over the timing of the rapture, and it was believed that if you didn't hold a certain view on the timing of the rapture, you'd actually denied the second coming. Obviously, it's one thing to hold an opinion, but it's obviously another thing if you make the mistake of equating the timing of the rapture with the second coming altogether. Similarly, this issue was not a divisive issue. The issue that people focused on was how can we resist the inroads of evolution in the culture and into the church? And I would argue that if we, and I seek to do this in a lot of detail in the book, but if we can actually look at what is critical for us to defend as a kind of level one essential Christian doctrine, this is certainly not one. Then if we look at level two issues, the things that separate Christians from, say, denominational unity, then in fact this isn't one either, and yet it literally almost blew up the Presbyterian Church of America until they sorted it out. And I would argue if we are not careful, we allow more important issues to creep in and go unnoticed, such as, again, the inroads of evolution among evangelicals. Yeah, if I could ask a follow-up question, are you able to put your finger on what the shift was that the rhetoric became old earth creationism equaled or, or became synonymous with or opened the doors for evolution? I actually document in the book one of my heroes, as I've mentioned, and for many years until his death, I supported ICR even after I disagreed with them and so on. But Henry, as I document in the book, established a tone it's not just a set of ideas, but a tone about this, which I argue has become something akin to in popularist ministries in young earth circles, often becomes considered to be a necessary component of teaching about this. And, and so I document very carefully in the book his actual language. And it's an interesting thing, I'll just tease our listeners, but I document how his inspiration for reviving young earth creationism as a way to fight evolution was drawn from the Seventh-day Adventists about a century ago who were the people working on this, and they definitely believed it was critical because a literal 24-hour consecutive seven-day creation week was essential in the visions of Ellen G. White to support Seventh-day Adventism. And so they had a kind of tone about this, that if you didn't believe in this doctrine, you were satanic and, 
and so on. So that is clearly where you can document where it happens. I'll just mention this one interesting feature. The vice president of Institute for Creation Research, one of my other heroes, Dwayne Gish, once spoke for me when I was teaching at Southwestern Seminary, spoke to my students. And he argued in front of the students, I don't think the age of the earth is critical, even though he was clearly a young earth creationist. He says, I think we should band together and resist evolution in the churches. And he said to me at the time that this was, in his opinion, really, really important. And yet that was not the direction which could have unified a great many evangelicals that Henry Morris took and then, of course, others since then. I think it's important in that to recognize that you're clearly drawing some lines. One of the things that is sometimes an accusation is that old earth creationism and evolution are somehow akin to one another, or even they're lumped into the same category. But as old earth creationists, we are very, very clearly drawing some lines, and a couple of those lines are a historical fall of Adam and Eve. There has to be a direct and divinely ordained and enacted creation of Adam and Eve and a historical fall of Adam and Eve. If we deny that, there is something essential that we're denying, but old earth creationism can easily accommodate that. And in fact, every old earth creationist I know, not an evolutionary creationist, but an old earth creationist, affirms the direct creation of Adam and Eve and a historical fall of Adam and Eve. That is exactly correct. In fact, the issue of the age of Adam has long been non-controversial among what we might just call traditional creationists of either old or young earth. So it is my friends at Biologos, um, they like to be called evolutionary creationists, and I have many friends there that I very much respect, but I think they're making a tragic mistake because their critical commitment is to belief in an evolutionary view of the world, and therefore how can we re- think about these traditional doctrines. They've, in my opinion, put the cart before the horse, and they are allowing this sort of thinking or commitment to evolution to cause them to come up with views of the creation of Adam and especially the doctrine of the fall that are deeply troubling to me that I do think we need to say no to this. Right. There's an equivalency theologically that Paul draws out in Romans between one man by him sin came into the world, and by one man we are redeemed. That is essential to a biblical theology, that there is a man by whom sin entered into the world, and there is a man, Jesus Christ, by whom we are redeemed. It also helps us to make clear that a person like my friends at Biologos who believe in Christ for their salvation by grace through faith, their belief about theistic evolution doesn't keep them from getting to heaven. That is not part of the gospel. But it is, I think, part of the gospel, what I might call the mountain peaks of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and final judgment. It's sort of the logical structure, not only of the Bible, but of all narrative worldviews. And I think the critical thing about creation, when I'm talking to an unbeliever, I want to point out to them, hey, look, Christians hold different views about these kinds of things. And the important thing in Genesis is to see that ultimate reality is in God and not an eternal world. It shows us the place in two chapters. The beauty of them shows us the place of human beings in relation to God, our relation to the created order, 
And then all of a sudden, by chapter 3, the tone is completely different, and the rest of the Bible is focused on the real problem that we have. And so, to me, I want to get that unbeliever seeing that in the end, when we talk about Christ and we get to Christ, He is the solution to the problem of a broken relationship between human beings and their Creator that they cannot fix. That's the message of the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation, the vindication that, in fact, he's not only who he said he was, that the prophets predicted he was, but that, in fact, our resurrection and salvation for those of us who trust in him is guaranteed as well. And so the end of the Bible, the New Testament, is very short. It's like the beginning gets short on creation and goes to fall. And in a sense, the beauty of Jesus is he explodes on the scene, blowing up history and causing everyone to rethink what it's all about, because he is God. He is the creator. Come and become one of us without sin so that he might save us. So I want to stress God alone owns us and the creation and who we are in relation to him. And only Christianity gets it right. We are not God, and we're not just dust. We're made in his image, but we're fallen. And Jesus has come to rescue us from what we can't save ourselves from. Well, it's time for Toy Box Hero, that moment in our program when Garrick and I take children's toys and place them into battle against one another to see who will win. With their permission, of course. With their permission, yes. most of the time. Actually, I took this one without this child's permission. So did so I, but she's like, she'll she's, never know. Yeah, she's 19 months old. So, yeah, know. mine's 24 and not living in the house. So, Actually, you know. what I am presenting today, she had in her hands at the time that I needed to take it. And I didn't. And I asked her mother, hey, when she is done, could you please deliver this to me? And so it was with permission, sort of. It was with permission. There you go. Well, I was inspired this week by what Garrick presented last week, which was a classic toy. And he presented a 1986 Transformer. And so I remembered that my oldest daughter has a 1980 Princess Leia from the original Empire Strikes Back. So nice. this is, let's oh, see if we can put it in here. Wait, wait. Oh, there we go. <laughs> there, there, you we go. go. there she is. There she is. There she is. So it's, that is it's Hoth the, Leia. Yes, it is Hoth Leia from 1980 from the original The Empire Strikes Back. This child whose toy this is was not alive, of course, at that time. But we were at a wedding of my nephew and his bride, and she knew that we liked Star Wars, and so she gave a special gift to each person in the wedding that was in the wedding party, and the gift she gave to our daughter was an original Princess Leia Hoth action figure from 1980. And so what I present to you is Princess Leia, and if you remember, on Hoth, she was not only mighty, but she was feisty as well <laughs> in the feisty. hallway with Han Solo. And so this is the one where she offers to get out and push the Millennium Falcon. I think that reveals she has 
pretty amazing superpowers that she was willing to get out and push the Millennium Falcon. And as we know later, she does become a Jedi that uh, that, that was dropped on us yeah. in Episode Nine okay, and shocked I, us. I guess so. After that, so <laughs> nonetheless, it's going to be difficult to beat Princess Leia future Jedi able to push the Millennium Falcon and able to stare down and talk down Han Solo. So here she is. This bucket of bolts is never going to get past that blockade. She's got a few surprises left in her sweetheart. In order to take down future General Organa, I would say that it would take a voracious appetite and passion for survival and winning and coming out on top. A voracious appetite held by the one and only very hungry caterpillar. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle, originally in 1969. This caterpillar, Timothy, will eat anything. Anything you throw at it, anything you put before it, he will eat straight through it and get bigger and bigger and bigger until the point where he probably would be like the size of Jabba the Hutt, maybe, except a little bit more mobile. Actually, I think the very hungry caterpillar, this is my theory, the very hungry caterpillar is that worm that they fly into its mouth inadvertently (laughs) in episode five of Star Wars. Do you remember? Uh, They fly into it in that and then they have to fly out through its teeth. That's the very hungry caterpillar after several years. It was uh, currently it eating that. its way through the a moon, essentially, it or was, a asteroid. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's probably the very hungry caterpillar. Yeah, many many years later, after I mean, 1969 to 1980, it only took it took 11 years. That's right. of eating, and it eventually was the size of a planet. Yeah, Leia did escape that time, but she she didn't defeat the caterpillar. So, I think over time, she's not going to make it out. I think that the very hungry caterpillar. <laughs> Could eat Princess Leia. That puts us into PG-13 violence territory on our program. We try to avoid that usually, but we'll let it go this time that the very hungry caterpillar that faced with Princess Leia might be able to do that. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. She might be able to use the Force later, but she couldn't use the she Force couldn't then. in That's right. You, That's you've right. Given me, you've given me pre-Jedi Leia. So. Yes. Yeah. She could get out and push the Millennium Falcon, but she couldn't. Caterpillar uh, would eat it. Eat right the through caterpillar, it. Yeah, right. The caterpillar on the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> I think the caterpillar narrowly wins this time, and we know the future of the caterpillar. It becomes that creature in, which I don't know the name of the creature, but it happens either. in episode five. If that caterpillar eventually became a butterfly, that thing would be massive. If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. I'm Timothy, and today we are going to talk about a band that can help to heal you. 
And I'm Garrick, and the theme song to The NeverEnding Story has been playing through my head for two days now. Today, we're going to be looking at ACDC and the classical arguments for the existence of God. Uh, did you say that ACDC can heal you? Yeah, as part of the research <laughs> for this, and and we do a lot of research for this, but uh, as part of the research for this, I found this article in 2016 in which the University of South Australia, they decided to try playing Thunderstruck while they were doing chemotherapy. And according to the article, Thunderstruck increased the movement of silicon microparticles. I don't know what those are, but it increased the movement of them so that they penetrated further into the cancerous tumor and therefore increased the possibility of being healed through chemotherapy. So there you go, folks. One more life-saving tip from Three Chords in the Truth. Also, their music can take down dictators because in 1989, Manuel Noriega spent two days in the Vatican's embassy in Panama, which, of course, there's another great song that goes with that. But nonetheless, he spent two days in the Vatican embassy there with the American military blasting out hell's bells. And after two days, he finally just gave up and surrendered after two days of hell's bells. So there you go. The music will heal you. It will take down dictators, but of course, you can guess how the first way I heard of ACDC was. (laughs) Tell us, Timothy. Tell us all about it. As you might expect, the way I first heard about ACDC was, in fact, at an anti-rock music (laughs) seminar. (laughs) And that anti-rock music seminar, they told us that it stood for Antichrist Devil's Child. I'm not sure that I have any memories or reflections of ACDC that don't occur in a weight room. (laughs) ACDC is like the go-to put the earbuds in, turn up the sound, and put on an ACDC playlist because you need to move heavy things or you need to break something. Their story actually begins in Glasgow, in Scotland, in 1963. In 1963, it was the worst winter ever in Scotland. And the young family, they lived in a flat with lead-contaminated water, with heat that didn't work. And they saw advertised on TV what was called, at that time, the 10-pound plan. Now, the 10-pound plan sounds like something I need to do, which is something to lose 10 pounds or something like that. But that was not what the 10-pound plan plan was. It was actually a way that the British government in the United Kingdom, they decided they were going to try to help poor families by sending them to Australia, basically. (laughs) So they said, all you have to do is pay 10 pounds. There are so many. There really are. And that you have to pay 10 pounds per adult in your family and will fly you to Australia. And so they, for 20 pounds total, mom, dad, and eight total children went to Australia. 
area. And at first they lived in these 10 huts that were in Sydney, but eventually they were able to get on with some good jobs. And they just were, as we've already talked about, they were rough, hardworking, blue collar people who went from Scotland to Australia to Sydney. And then over time, they made it. Well, all the boys in the young family, this fascinating, were musicians. The oldest brother, George, he was in a band called The Easy Beats. This is when we get into our the favorite part of some of our discussions is the band names. In 1966, the Easy Beats had the first international hit song from an Australian band. That's kind of fun. And the song called Friday on My Mind. By the early 1970s, Malcolm and Angus were both playing in bands. Malcolm was playing in a band called the Velvet Underground, mm. <laughs> but not the Velvet Underground we know from New York City. That's actually the Velvet Underground is from a 1963 book that we won't talk about. Not only was Malcolm in a band, but Angus was as well. And the name of Angus's band was, seriously, folks, Kentucky. It was yes. named Kentucky after Kentucky Fried Chicken, which had reached Australia in 1968. And so he named his band after KFC. He named his band Kentucky. <laughs> and at this point, I have to insert a story that has nothing to do with ACDC or rock and roll. But I once had to make a phone call to get support, help on some technical problem I was having. And I had the pleasure of speaking with a delightful young gentleman located somewhere else in the world who, when he found out where I was from in Kentucky, he just began to glow and tell me how much he loved Kentucky Fried Chicken and favorite, you know, loved it and thinks the world of Kentucky because of KFC and all that. And I, I had to break the young man's heart. And I think that the world's view of Kentucky is that we all love and eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. And the fact of the matter is, I haven't had it once since I've lived here. And I had to tell this nice man, it's not even like in the top five chicken places that I would send you to if you came and visited Kentucky. He was baffled, baffled. So it's it's a lot like, you know, I grew up in Texas and everyone thought that I rode a horse to school and that's not true either. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. Like being in other places, when we were in Australia one time, somebody said, oh, you're from Kentucky like KFC. I'm like, no, <laughs> not Kentucky like KFC. <laughs> so in 1973, Malcolm invited Angus to join his new band. So Angus left Kentucky, the band, not the state. Who knows if he had ever been to the state, and joins the band. This new band had no name at the time. So here we go. Here's the fun part. Their sister, Margaret, she saw... ACDC etched into her sewing machine right beside the electrical cord, and she suggested ACDC be their new band name. And folks, this is further evidence that if this book doesn't already exist, there has to be a book written on the history of band names. It's desperately needed because this stuff is just so much fun. I want to do a whole podcast just on band names. We I ought do. to. We ought we, to. We should. And that brings us to what they actually call ACDC in Australia. So I'm in a car with somebody in Australia, and they ask me, what kind of music do you like? And I, I talk about classic rock, hard rock, and they said, oh, so you probably like Akadaka. Like, I've never heard of Akadaka. They, and they said, you did know. You, did you mean ABBA? I'm like, what? I don't, <laughs> what? I didn't know. And they and they said, you know, the, the band that does, you know, Highway to Hell and all these. It's like, 
oh, ACDC, they call ACDC in Australia, Akadaka. That's what they actually call ACDC. We've all been saying it wrong Wait, this whole time, why? I guess. Wait, I you don't can't know. leave it there. Wait, you really don't know? I don't you know have no why. answer for that question? They don't know either. They just call them Akadaka, and I don't even know why, and they they didn't have an answer for why they called. Oh, that's going that, to uh, eat that. me alive from the inside. Yeah, we've got to answer this question. Well, when, if you when Malcolm, are listening out there in the world yes, and you're yes. from Australia and you know this answer, or if you just wherever you're from and you know the answer, we have to know. You have yes, to. Yes, we let need us know. to know the answer to this question. And if you don't know, just make something oh, up to satisfy true. us. That will satisfy <laughs> us. So Malcolm Young, he becomes the rhythm guitar player in the band instead of lead guitar because he didn't want to be as sober as he would need to be to play lead guitar. <laughs> and so that was the reason he went with rhythm guitar. And Angus Young is just so fascinating because he doesn't drink or do drugs. According to all reports, he drinks tea, he smokes, he drinks chocolate milk, he eats spaghetti. But he doesn't do drugs. He's never drank in his life, basically, except for the cigarettes. He's a Southern Baptist, basically. He did find that wearing different outfits helped him to kind of become that just wild persona on stage. And so he's experimented with different outfits, Zorro, Superman, Gorilla, and the schoolboy. But everybody <laughs> seemed to like the schoolboy yep. outfit. And, you know, I think it's lasted better than Zorro, Superman, or a Gorilla would have. Yeah. I really do. I really, the Zorro one makes me laugh, though. So ACDC, or if you're in Australia and say it wrong, Akadaka, <laughs> they released two albums in Australia, right? And then in 1976, they had their first international release. The name of that album was High Voltage. Now, the reviews of this album in Rolling Stone magazine, they weren't great, <laughs> to say the least. According to the review in Rolling Stone, I bet you this guy never lives it down either. He says, with this album, Hard Rock has unquestionably hit its all-time low. Calculated stupidity like this offends me. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. Oh, man, it was very successful yeah. stupidity. That guy did uh, not get backstage passes. <laughs> surely totally. not. Surely not. So later in 1976, after this first international release, they released another album, Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap. And then in 1977, they released what I think was the first album that everything kind of comes together in an amazing way musically. Like the whole album just works. And that album is Let There Be Rock, which was also their first appearance of the logo that we associate with them with the gothic black letter ACDC and the lightning bolt in between. One of my favorite stories from the recording of this album is that when they were recording the song Let There Be Rock during Angus's guitar solo, his amp caught on fire and partially melted during the solo. This is like Eddie Van Halen when he plays the solo on Michael Jackson's Beat It, that during the solo on this, Let There Be Rock, the amp catches on fire. That's just the most epic rock thing that there could be that your amp that goes into flames so during rock. the solo. That is Face-melting rock. So the opening lyrics of the song, Let There Be Rock, retell the early history of rock and roll. And they say, in the beginning, back in 1955, man didn't know about a rock and roll show and all that jive. 
The white man had the schmaltz. The black man had the blues. No one knew what they was going to do. But then Tchaikovsky had the news. He said, let there be sound. Confession, (laughs) I am a white male. And I have never heard of and still have no idea what the schmaltz is. <laughs> so schmaltz is actually a Yiddish term. I don't know where Bon Scott, the lead vocalist who wrote the lyrics to this song, I don't know where he picked it up. But it's a Yiddish word that has to do with over-sentimental, overly romantic music. It seems maybe to refer to kind of the really lush pop music of Frank Sinatra and others. And then he says, Tchaikovsky had the news. And it's just a great set of lines right there. He seems to be hinting at right there the song by Chuck Berry that was covered by the Beatles, which was Roll Over Beethoven. There's a line in that that says, Roll Over Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news. And so basically it's saying rock and roll has shown up and rock and roll is taking over. Roll Over Beethoven, Tchaikovsky is now calling out for there to be rock and roll. Yeah, and one of the reasons that we're talking about it in this episode is because Let There Be Rock is sort of a retelling of Genesis 1, right? Or in the tradition of, or borrowing the narrative of Genesis 1, except that what's being created isn't the cosmos as we know it, it's rock and roll. And this connection between Genesis and the Bible is even clearer in the video. Now, the video was actually filmed in a church, Woolera Uniting Church, and it's in Sydney. I've been up by there, but I think that the church as it was in the 70s has actually been moved, burned, or something like that. I couldn't find it. It's just north of Centennial Park. If you're walking in Sydney, it's just north of Centennial Park is where it was, and there is a Woolera Uniting Church right there, but it's not the one that's in the video. But nonetheless, Bon Scott and ACDC show up there, and Bon Scott, he actually takes to the pulpit, dressed up as a priest. At one point during the shooting of the video, he jumped off the pulpit and sprained his ankle as well. But what's the best part of that is in the midst of them recording this video, ACDC in this church, Bon Scott dressed as a priest in the pulpit, the pastor of the church walks in and nobody had told him that this was going to be happening. (laughs) So good. I think it's really fascinating in the song. There is a turn to the subject and a removal of God, we might say, because the creator in this who says, let there be light, let there be these things, isn't God, it's Tchaikovsky. <laughs> and then as you move through the song, everyone with a guitar becomes a creator, we might say. It says 15 million fingers learning how to play. You could hear the fingers picking, and this is what they had to say, let there be light. It's humanity in some sense, becomes the creator. And there's there's a little bit of truth in that because God has created us and constituted us in such a way that he made us, but we make things and we make art and we do art and we create different things. But God has been removed from this equation. But there's another theme as well, and that's the one we're going to focus on in the rest of our time together. And that is that wherever there is order and artistry, This song implicitly recognizes that there has to be a cause, 
and that cause has to be a person. You don't have something like rock and roll or a musical form that arises somehow randomly or impersonally. Rather, where there is a creation, where there is an effect, where especially where there's order and artistry to that effect, there has to be a cause. They don't ascribe the rise of rock and roll to random chance. There's a cause, and that cause in this song is personal and creative in its nature. Even in their very secular mindset, there are certain things they are aware of that fit with the classical arguments for the existence of God. And today we're going to look at three different arguments for the existence of God that there's some interplay with the song in those. And the first one is an argument from cause, and that is called the cosmological argument. That's what the name of it is properly is, is the cosmological argument. And as I think about that in the song, there's a point in the song that it says back in 1955. In other words, that there was a beginning point, but before that beginning, point, there had to be something that brought that about, which was that the white man had the schmaltz, the black man had the blues. There is some sort of a rational and sufficient cause for what emerges in 1955 with the emergence of rock and roll. And it came to pass that rock and roll was born no crosses in every rock and band was up a Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. That is, you can't just go backwards forever and ever with causes and effects. That which is an effect must have a cause. And this song implicitly in a human context recognizes that. But that's true, not just in a human context, but in the context of the cosmos. Yeah, another version gives these three premises where, where it states there are contingent things, right? Things that depend on something else for their existence, right? And then the second statement is all contingent things are indeed dependent on something else. Third statement says, but not everything can be dependent on something else. And here comes the conclusion. Therefore, there must exist at least one non-contingent thing. In other words, there is at least one thing, which we're saying as a person, that exists necessarily in order for all of these other things to have come from, essentially. The second argument that I think there are some things in the song that hint at, at a human level, but are true at a cosmological, at a much bigger level as well, and that is an argument from design. So we looked first at an argument from cause, the cosmological argument, and this one is an argument from design that is usually called the argument from design, but that's a terrible name for it. That's just, <laughs> that's so plain. So I call it the tassological argument. I'm trying to make yeah. this case that it ought to be called the tassological argument from the Greek word 
Tasso, Tassamai, which means I ordain or I order or I organize. I probably will lose this, Listen, but friends, I still want to do it's this. It's important for you to know that Timothy has a few things in life that he is trying to get new words and new terms to stick on. And I think he has good arguments. But in reality, this has only worked once. He invented one term, this family... Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to say it wrong. Family equipping. (laughs) Yes, family equipping model. Model of ministry. And ever since he got that to stick, he's now he's trying in all these other areas. And I mean, good luck to you, but I just, you're you're swimming against a current on this one. We need to do a whole episode on hyperdiophysitism. I'm still arguing for that one. I hope everyone hit fast forward and skipped what you just tried to do there, or I'm going to, or someone edits it out later. But you've got this argument from design, whatever we want to call it, the tassological argument is what I contend it should be called. But nonetheless, (laughs) in the song, Let There Be Rock, they're speaking of 15 million fingers that are learning to play rock and roll. And what that hints at is the necessity of the fact that anything that is created has to take order. It can't just randomly come together. There's something that is orderly that has to precede it. Even rock and roll. Rock and roll can seem pretty disorderly at times, but yet it requires skill, practice, order. Something that is orderly is preceded by something orderly. You don't have order come out of randomness or disorder. And you may have never heard the phrase argument from design before, but if you've ever heard anyone make any type of attempt to defend the existence of God, you've probably heard some version of this argument. Two of the more popular ones are called the the watchmaker argument, and another one's called the fine-tuning argument, right? So, the watchmaker argument, right, was made famous by a man named William Paley in in his work called Natural Theology at the beginning of the 19th century. And it's an example of an argument from analogy or also kind of a tip of the hat to what best explains what it is that we see. And so, so the watchmaker version goes something a little like this. Suppose one day that you're walking in a field. This is also real fun because you can tell it as a fun story, right? You're walking in the field and you trip over something or you kick something with your foot and you look down and and you see a watch, right? And so you pick up this watch and you begin to examine it and and the watch appears as you begin to pull it apart to have parts that are put together for a purpose, right? Intricately made, designed for a a specific purpose. And so it appears, right, the watch has been designed. And thus your conclusion is, even though you cannot see the designer of this watch, uh, the conclusion is that this watch must have a designer. And so when you apply this analogy to the universe, you notice some things. You, you notice that the universe appears to have parts that have been put together for a purpose and that there is this delicate uh, balance and, and precision that exists. And so it does appear to be designed, not happenstance, not disorderly, not chaotic. And therefore, the analogous argument goes, the conclusion is that there must be a designer of this universe. And so, this was a very convincing, strong argument for quite a while that fell out of favor when Charles Darwin comes along and eventually the Darwinian model of natural selection begins to give other possible explanations for what it is we see in the world. And so, the watchmaker 
argument kind of not as defeated, but just loses some of its its power because there seems to be an alternative explanation for the appearance of design. And and so another version that's probably pointed at, yeah, probably more popular today, I would say, is this fine-tuning argument that I mentioned. And and it's pretty simple. It lies on the premise that the universe doesn't just seem to be designed, but it is precisely, it is fine-tuned for the existence of life and for a particular kind of life. And so the hypothesis when it comes to a these people that we would call like material naturalists, right, that all we are is collections of atoms and brought together by chance and whatnot, on their hypothesis of how the universe came to be or, or how how do things seem to be designed, we ask them, what is the probability that the universe out of chaos would be fine-tuned precisely in this way? And we posit that the cause, the Christian theistic explanation for design and fine-tune makes much more sense of what it is we see. The third argument is one from directions. We've seen that we've got the argument from design. We've seen that we've got an argument from cause. And now we've got an argument from direction, what's often called the teleological argument. And I think of the lines in the song, let there be light, let there be sounds, let there be drums, let there be guitar. And it's not enough, though, for all of these things to be. All of these things come together for a purpose. They come together to, in essence, to create a song. They work together towards the goal of a song. And so what we see in this is it's not enough for these things merely to exist or even to have an order They come together to form a song. We might say in some sense that music has an eschatology. It's not a matter of all these different individual instruments that can play. It's rather it comes together toward a purpose, and that purpose is a song. I would even further press that and say within any given song, it has its own eschatology and order and direction of sorts. Because if you'll notice, if you listen to a song, It's never just the same exact thing over and over. A song builds towards something. It always does. It builds towards a direction. There's a purpose in it. And what that really reveals about humanity is that we cannot escape this fact that we were created to have a direction. We were created to go toward a goal. All of creation is created in this way. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, he said, whatever has less intelligence cannot move toward a goal unless it is directed by some being with greater intelligence. And then he points out how everything seems to move in in a direction towards some degree of a goal. So that means there has to be some intelligence behind it that created it. So three years later, after Let There Be Rock, Bon Scott died on February 19th, 1980, after a night of heavy drinking. And at that time, ACDC was working on an album that would become Back in Black. And things for them change, obviously. Things change completely. They have a new lead vocalist that's brought in, Brian Johnson, and they continue, but that album, Back in Black, is all in black and is is called that in part just as a mourning for Bon Scott. And they as a group are just a group that is so full 
of paradoxes because 1979, 1980, around that same time, Angus Young got married and he is still married to that same woman today, 41 years or so later. Malcolm Young, his brother, he got married in 1979, was married to the same woman until his death in 2017. In 1988, Malcolm, it's clear, was headed down the same road as Bon Scott. His alcoholism had gotten completely out of hand, and he went into rehab and has been alcohol-free, was ever since that point. So strange, this band of brothers, literally, that have gone through all of this, and they are in some ways so full of paradoxes. Their music has a lot of talk about hell, but God is basically completely absent in their music. They don't discuss religion and God, and yet they have a clear sense of the evil side of things. They are full of such paradoxes, but they can't escape the truth of their creator, even amidst all these paradoxes. Yeah, and talking before we began recording, Timothy made a comment that to him, ACDC strikes him as the most secular of rock bands. This is an interesting thing to think about because in that statement, what he means when he says that ACDC is is the most godless band that he can think of, he's not saying that ACDC is the most atheistic or anti-theist band that he can think of because we can, we all could think of examples of bands, songs, lyrics that are far more hostile to anything spiritual, anything religious, or even Christianity specifically. But but what Timothy's saying is that they are the epitome of secularity, of our secular society now, which is not rabidly anti-God, but largely just has no place for him anymore. The turn to self that Timothy mentioned earlier in the song, Let There Be Rock, well, that's just a reflection of what actually happened in our world's history, that a couple hundred years ago, we pushed God largely out of our narrative, our narrative of the reality of the way things are, the narrative of our daily lives. And yes, that results in people who are explicitly anti-theist, but largely it just means that people don't think about him, not even a, a passing thought. He has no place in their everyday concerns. And that seems to describe ACDC, except for a couple of songs, maybe, that seems to describe them quite well. And despite the fact that God doesn't seem to have a place, religion, God, spiritual realm, doesn't have any sort of positive place that we can really find in ACDC's music. What we see is that in spite of themselves, there is evidence of God woven in every note that they play because the order that brings about their music is order that comes from a God who can be known through design, that can be known through the causes we see in the universe, that can be known through the direction we see that the universe has, he can be known through creation itself. Not fully known, but he can be known through creation itself. And the evidence of him is woven through every bit of creativity that we see on the planet. Sound. 
Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. To learn more about classical arguments for the existence of God, take a look at the book. Yeah, I can't do that. Take a look at... I can't say take a look at the book. Oh, okay. Um, check out... Um, <laughs> uh, take a look at the... Is it new? Is it newish? No. No, it's not. Take a look at the... Uh, work. Look... To, uh, okay, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Take a look at the book. Just feels too Dr. Seussish. That's why. Uh, take a look. Take a look the at the book. In the crook with, with the, the wood. With, <laughs> with the fox. In a box.